Kiev leaves me with a strange, nightmarish feeling. You won't have any such horrible feelings if you visit. I'm sure you'll love it, and I absolutely recommend it to you. It's incredibly cheap, its architecture is in gorgeous shades of lemon and spearmint and raspberry pink. Some of it is, of course, a lot of it is in the standard Soviet drab, but even that is fascinating as it reveals the city's history. Even crossing the roads in Kiev is intriguing. Anyone who's fond of dashcam videos on YouTube will know that the most hair-raising stuff tends to come from Russia and Ukraine. And I was genuinely a bit fretful about having to cross those big wide streets. But you don't need to worry because most of the main streets have pedestrian tunnels beneath them. Now, in Britain, those tunnels would be damp, echoing places with nothing inside but a flickering fluorescent light and a sense of menace. But not in Kiev. Those walkways are crammed full of little shops and stalls. Step down into one of them so you can cross Taras Shevchenko Boulevard and you'll emerge at the other side laden with phone cards and lighters, warm croissants and an apron in bold patterns in the Ukrainian peasant style. So you'll love Kiev, even if you're slightly intimidated by it, as I was, by its fierce Soviet flavour, which lingers no matter how trendy and western it might try to be. There are no annoying tour groups anywhere, all in their little matching baseball caps, waving the flags. Although you can spot little bits of western gentrification start to creep in. There's a huge glassy hilton, for example, crowned with twinkling gold lights. And we saw a hipster steak joint called Sorry Vegans. So the west is coming. To Kiev, at least. In fact, it seemed as though the city was positively inviting it. I've never seen so many EU flags before. Happily for those in the city who want to display a welcome to the EU, the colours of the Ukrainian flag match those of the European Union, blue and yellow. And blue and yellow was everywhere in Kiev. Maidan Square was draped in EU flags, although admittedly I'm not sure if that's a permanent display or if it was just there to mark some celebration. And Ukrainian colours are visible everywhere, not just in flags, but in the paint chosen for railings and in the colours of tarpaulin draped over scaffolding. So yes, I loved Kiev whilst I was there. But looking back on it now, I shudder because it turns out that my husband was seriously ill and we didn't know it. We just thought he had a chest infection. I kept telling him to buck up and stop moaning. But instead he had severe heart failure. And then I was dragging him around Kiev a very hilly city, and then onwards into Chernobyl. And there wasn't even a break after that. From Chernobyl and Kiev, we went on to Budapest and Prague to crawl around nuclear bunkers in both of those cities. He politely complained of being a bit weary, a bit breathless. But I just nagged him, come on, come on, we have more bunkers to explore. Take a paracetamol and let's go. In Prague airport, waiting for a flight home, That ominous pain in the left arm developed, as did dizziness. His heart was failing, and David, being brave, and knowing that I'm already a nervous wreck, already on Valium just to make sure I could get on the flight, didn't want to frighten me, so he didn't want to say how bad things were. Instead, he asked if I might get him a Mars bar from the airport shop. 
Maybe some sugar would help his lightheadedness, he thought. Severe heart failure. And he asked for a Mars bar. So when I think back to that trip, it feels like a nightmare. And the nightmare is always summed up by Kiev because that was the most vivid, overwhelming city that we visited. Kiev also produced the day where David, according to his Fitbit, walked more steps than he ever has in his life. Even in his healthy days, he never clocked up 22,000 steps in one day, 14.2 kilometres, but that's what I put him through one day in Kiev when I dragged him up and down the city's hills just so we could visit a particular metro station. And it's that metro station which I'll talk about in this podcast because, of course, it has a connection to nuclear war. We started that day with breakfast in our hotel. It was December, near Christmas, and I remember sitting at the very grey, grimy windows of the dining room, looking out through all the thin, ratty tinsel to the street. And yes, I'm sorry, Kiev, but your windows were often grimy. (laughs) I assume that's because of all the snow and the salt being put on the ground to soak it up. Plus the terrible air pollution from all those Soviet-era cars which remain. Yep, smoky ladders still zoom around the place, as do Porsche Cayennes, which seem to be a very common car in Kiev. Those ladders, of course, are banned now in the EU because of their filthy emissions. Even those ladders form part of my Kiev nightmare, with David thinking that his worsening symptoms were due to perhaps the heavy pollution which was hanging in the very sharp, freezing air. Maybe that was aggravating some chest infection. I wanna wish you a Merry Christmas. I wanna wish you a and if I hear the Christmas song Feliz Navidad, I'm straight back to that nightmarish feeling, straight back to frozen Kiev, about to depart for Chernobyl. And with David saying, something's not right, I don't feel well, I don't feel right. And me just waving a hand at him, don't be daft, you're fine. That song seemed to play everywhere throughout our whole trip. Not just Kiev, but in the Christmas markets of Prague and Budapest. Um, is it particularly popular in Eastern and Central Europe? Because I've never heard it in Britain being played so incessantly. Maybe it was the Eastern Bloc's equivalent of our cheesy Christmas pop songs, like I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. So we finished our breakfast, no doubt with Feliz Navidad playing in the background, and we set out to visit the Arsenalna metro station. David was very weary, very breathless, but I said, don't worry, you know, we'll walk there and then we'll take the metro back, easy peasy. As soon as we pushed open the swing doors and entered the station hall, I realised very quickly there's no such thing as a quiet time in Kiev. Everything was chaos. People were crowded round the ticket machines and queuing up at the ticket booths. And just in case that didn't offer enough cause to be cramming into the ticket hall. There was also a newsstand and a tiny shop and that had queues. And of course everyone in those queues was wearing big bulky winter coats, trudging around with them slushy old boots on. There was nothing quiet and relaxed about it. Everything was activity and bustle and noise. Now we had to buy our tickets and only having a tiny bit of tourist Ukrainian, I tried to buy my metro tokens at the machine. So I didn't need to go through the awkwardness of speaking to another human. 
but something was wrong with the machine or I was doing something wrong and a woman elbowed in to tell me what it was. But as she wasn't saying, hello, can I please have two coffees? I didn't know what she was saying. I couldn't understand this Ukrainian. So I slunk away to the ticket office. I'd rather face the woman behind the grill. I put my note through the glass and said, Dva Budlaska, two please. You can't get that wrong, come on, two please. And it worked. <laughs> I've realised that saying things with a false and perky confidence often does work. So she understood and she gave me two blue tokens, which looked like the kind of things you use to play tiddlywinks with. These got us through the barriers, but then came the real challenge. Descending down, down, down into the earth. Now, the station, Arsenalna, the deepest in the world, is so deep that one escalator just won't cut it. There are two consecutive escalators and they both zoom along at an alarming speed. Uh, I don't know how fast they go, but it's definitely faster than they do in nice, sensible old Britain. Uh, You don't just step casually onto these escalators. You need to time it and choose your moment, take a breath and then leap aboard. You can't hesitate, you can't be polite, you can't be British. You have to just shove yourself in there and jump on, be confident. So as we walked towards the escalators, those zooming, whizzing escalators, I felt as if I was in the queue for a roller coaster. I expected to see a wooden figure at the top saying, you must be at least this brave to enter. So David went first. I probably shoved him to make him go first. He stepped on and was instantly carried off, vanishing into a crowd of swiftly disappearing bobble hats and smartphones. Wait for me, I whimpered and sprang onto the stairs, and the breeze ruffled my hair as we sped off. The journey down takes about four minutes, so locals who are cool with all, they'll check their phones or they'll chat. Some of them even plant themselves on the stairs and read. No one clings, white-knuckled, to the trundling banister, but I did. After a minute passed, I suppose I loosened my grip slightly and tried to look cool about it all. Yeah, whatever, I'm an atomic hobo. Now, the escalators going so fast, I was gradually getting used to their speed, but as the end of the stair approached, I saw that yet more skills were needed. So fast are the stairs that you need to leap off, just as you leapt on at the top. And if you footer and fidget as you disembark, then the merciless metal conveyor belt will jam 20 Ukrainians into your back, shoulders and heels. And they might shout at you. So take a breath and spring, and you're back on solid ground again. You mop your brow, you congratulate yourself, you nod that you're indeed badass. But then you hear an ominous clacking, clicking, trundling sound. You look up, and there's another escalator. You need to do it all again. So I met David, and we went forward to the next one. He went first, with me clutching onto his waist, like we were doing a meek, very meek, very British conga. I was more confident on the stairs the second time around, although David got into some difficulty at the bottom. He was directly behind an old couple, and the woman was bundled into a coat, bent over at the waist, and wearing a cotton wool patch over one eye. She wasn't exactly light on her feet, and so she didn't have the required zesty spring, which you need at the bottom of the stairs. So... 
David clattered up against her at the foot of the stairs, and then I, of course, hurtled into David. And I'm sorry to say I gave him a bit of a kick and a glare, and he gallantly blamed the old babushka. So finally, we've reached the bottom of the world's deepest train station. We stood in a bright, spacious corridor with passageways taking passengers left and right to the platforms. So I began looking for signs of the nuclear shelter. And I hate to disappoint you, but I couldn't find a thing. Obviously I didn't expect to see a flashing neon sign saying, Hide from Armageddon this way please. But I did have hopes of seeing ominous metal doors or shutters. There were plenty of doors on the platforms, but these were just ordinary wooden doors, sometimes with a bit of fancy scrollwork on them. Did they lead to a nuclear shelter or just a janitor's cupboard? What was behind these doors? Was it eternity or mops? There were also recessed sections of the wall covered with big slabs of coffee-coloured marble, but nothing which suggested a nuclear shelter. A train came in and it cleared the platform and we were free to wander up and down. We checked the passageways, we checked the platform, we checked the walls, but we saw nothing out of the ordinary. At the top of the escalators back in the busy ticket hall, I'd seen grey metal doors to close off the route down to the platform, but maybe they were just a standard security feature when the station's been locked up at night. They certainly didn't look thick enough to offer anything like blast or fallout protection. So there was nothing here. There was nothing dramatic and obvious and eerie. There was nothing sinister. It just looked like any other metro station. So we wandered around and eventually we just shrugged. There was nothing down here which looked like the entrance to a secret fallout shelter. So we went back upstairs and we walked back to our hotel. Uh, A sensible person, of course, would have got on the metro and went three stops to uh, Universitat, which was near our hotel. But I couldn't. um, As I said, 2pm in the Kiev metro was still jam-packed busy and I couldn't manage to climb aboard one of the trains. So we had to just walk back up. Nuclear failures. And walk back to our hotel. So it was only when I got back home that I realised why we hadn't seen any evidence of nuclear shelters. Only once I was back home and looking up the answer on good old YouTube. I couldn't see any big, scary, monstrous blast doors because you're not supposed to see them. They're hidden within the walls, sometimes tucked into the floor or ceiling. They're not out on display, frightening the passengers every day. Maybe if they had been on display, it would have caused people to be blasé about the nuclear threat. How anxious would people be if they could lean against the blast door as they waited for a train, chatted up a girl, read the newspaper, ate some crisps? Or it could go the other way, couldn't it? It could foster a sense of terrible unease or a sense of indifference. It could even invite vandalism and sabotage. So no, the blast doors, in the Kiev metro at least, are hidden. 
So where are they? There are plenty of videos on YouTube showing you the different ways in which they can emerge. Some of the doors are hidden inside the wall and at the flick of a switch somewhere behind the scenes they roll out from the wall. Some of them are under the floor and again someone presses a button somewhere behind the scenes and the thing rises up or alternatively they're in the ceiling and they clatter down to the ground like um, like when Indiana Jones grabs his hat at the last minute before the stone clanks down onto the ground. So they're in the walls, they're in the floor, they're in the ceiling. They're not immediately visible to the ordinary members of the public. If you're looking for them, you can see uh, metal plates or grids where the things are hidden and where they emerge from. But if you're looking for a blast door, something you've seen in a Hollywood film or a nuclear bunker, which I'm slightly ashamed to say I was, I was looking for something very obvious, you won't see it. Instead, look for metal slats or plates in the wall, roof or ceiling. And from that metal grate or space, the huge blast door emerges. Soviet metro systems, um, famously Moscow's of course, which is absolutely spectacular, but also Kiev's, they tend to be quite ornate, quite grand. Their main purpose, of course, was to take people to work, to glorify the act of work. We're all comrades together. Um, This has been built by workers, therefore is glorious and celebrates the notion of work whilst also carrying you to work. It belonged to the people uh, and likewise, in the event of a nuclear attack, it would have sheltered the people. If the siren had gone off and you were near to a metro station, you simply ran there for shelter You didn't need to be allocated a space there or to be a certain person of influence. Um, The the metro offered shelter to the ordinary people in the street who were there when the siren went off. So it was a space of shelter and safety, in theory, for the ordinary people of the city. However, the Moscow metro, there is a rumour that that had a third purpose, which certainly wasn't to do with the benefit of the people, Obviously, the primary purpose is, is, to, is transport. The secondary purpose, as with Kiev, is to double as a nuclear shelter. But rumour says that there was a third purpose, and that was to quickly evacuate the communist top brass from Moscow out to the airport. It is rumoured that the Moscow metro has a kind of mirror metro, a kind of double uh, metro, which is, of course, is hidden from view. No one knows about it. Officially, it doesn't exist. It's only rumour. But apparently, uh, another metro exists parallel to the ordinary one called, or nicknamed Metro 2. And the purpose of Metro 2 is to safely scoot all the important politicians out of Moscow as quickly as possible. Now, uh, Metro 2 isn't a spectacular secret. It's uh, quite openly discussed. The rumour is indulged all across the internet. Some people even claim to have seen it, but who knows? Um, I don't know how you could build a parallel metro (laughs) without people knowing about it. Surely all the workers who built said parallel metro would automatically be in on the secret, unless they just thought they were just building emergency exits or service tunnels, etc. Who knows? It's an interesting thought. It's an interesting idea. Uh, So Google it, Metro 2, and indulge in a 
Nice little conspiracy theory. There are plenty, of course, who say it's far more than just a conspiracy theory. In fact, in 1991, the US Department of Defence published a report called Military Forces in Transition. I'm simply taking this from Wikipedia. It's not anything that I've dug out of an archive. It's from Wikipedia. And this report um, alluded to this secret metro system. Uh, I'll just give you the quote, which again is on Wikipedia. The Soviets have constructed deep underground, both in urban Moscow and outside the city. These facilities are interconnected by a network of deep, interconnected subway lines that provide a quick and secure means of evacuation for the leadership. The leadership can move from their peacetime offices through concealed entryways in protective quarters beneath the city. There are important deep underground command posts in the Moscow area, one located at the Kremlin. Soviet press has noted the presence of an enormous underground leadership bunker adjacent to Moscow State University. These facilities are intended for the National Command Authority in wartime. They are estimated to be between 200 metres and 300 metres deep and can accommodate an estimated 10,000 people. A special subway line runs from some points in Moscow and possibly to the VIP terminal at Vinokovo Airfield. And again from Wikipedia, when the former uh, boss of the Moscow Metro was questioned about uh, Metro 2 and whether it was a possibility, he said, I would be surprised if it did not exist. And in another interview, he said, there's a lot of talk about the existence of secret transport tunnels. I will not deny anything. I would be surprised if they did not exist. You ask, can we use them to transport passengers? It's not for me to decide, but for those organisations who own the railways, I do not exclude such a possibility. And before I finish today, let me say thank you to all the patrons who support my podcast, particularly the following. Arika, Lucy Stegerwald, Jonathan Abelins, Peter Mars, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Julie Eek, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Laura and Rebecca Curtis-Moss, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butcher, Lee Pierce, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. Special hello to Julie Eek, who just joined me today um, as I was about to start recording the podcast. You got in just in time, Julie, for a shout-out on this week's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please take a look at my Patreon, which you'll find at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, and you can sign up for various different levels of support and in return get different kinds of nuclear-themed rewards. 
but thank you to everyone who supports it. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. I know the last one I did about trains and nuclear war was very popular, so maybe there are quite a few train geeks out there. So I hope you've enjoyed this one. Um, It has a different flavour, of course, to my usual ones. It wasn't solidly archive material. It was obviously a bit of a story at the beginning about my trip to Kiev and the strange way in which I remember Kiev. If anyone's wondering or is concerned, David is okay. David has um, been saved by the NHS and he's sitting across the hall from me right now playing some computer game because that's what he does. But he's much better. He's back at work and touch wood. He is absolutely fine thanks to the NHS. So I hope you've enjoyed our train-themed podcast this week. If you've got any questions or you want to find out more, get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or my website, juliemcdowell.com. Or if you're on Facebook, I'm there under Nuclear Prison. And I'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you all for listening and bye for now.